Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Tracy Morgan, your host, and um, today we are delighted to have with us Elizabeth Andanto, and um, we'll be speaking about her book, um, co-edited actually with Alexandra Steiner-Strauss, uh, titled Freud slash Tiffany. It's a very um, graphic um, kind of title. Anna Freud, Dorothy Tiffany, Burlingham, and the Best Possible School. Um, before we get started um, in on the interview, I just wanted to make a brief announcement to our listeners. I um, just wanted to say, listeners, do you love psychoanalysis? Do you like to read? Do you ever fantasize about having the kind of conversation I'm about to have with authors of psychoanalytic books you've read? Well, you're in luck. We're opening our doors to potential new hosts. We're also looking for social media savvy interns who can help us reach more listeners and spread, quote, the gospel of psychoanalysis. If either possibility interests you, email me at tracedoris at gmail, T-R-A-C-E-D-O-R-I-S at gmail.com. Look forward to hearing from you. And now, without further ado, on to the interview. Um, hi, Elizabeth. Um, welcome hi. to New Books in Psychoanalysis, and we're very pleased to have you here. Um, I really, you know, I recognize that I wanted to interview you initially um, years back on Freud's Free Clinics, but, you know, there's only so much time um, in, in the day. So, but that book was extraordinarily influential. Um, a few words about Dr. Danto. Um, she is a professor of social work and emeritus at Hunter College and at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Her book that I just mentioned, Freud's Free Clinic, Psychoanalysis and Social Justice, 1918 to 1938, Columbia University Press, 2005, was awarded the Gradiva Book Award and the Goethe Prize. Her textbook on historical research in the social sciences was published by Oxford University Press in 2008. Dr. Danto writes and lectures, and she's a terrific lecturer. If you get a chance to go see her, I went to see her at, at NIPSI. Um, she lectures extensively on the history of psychoanalysis as a system of thought and a marker of urban culture. Uh, from the New Yorker magazine to Wikipedia, her work has become a standard reference in psychoanalysis and progressive social history. She's also um, producing cultural projects. You got to love this. Um, she's producing cultural projects throughout Europe. And she's a consultant curator at the Freud Museum in London and developed a ma- the major exhibit, Freud Tiffany. The book is uh, derived from that exhibit, The Best Possible School, which opened in May 2017. The current publication, um, by the way, is uh, from Rutledge and it's um, dated 2018. So now that I've said all of this, um, welcome again to the program. Yeah. Thank you. So, um, our first question that we like to ask um, our interviewees is what prompted the um, production collection of these essays, the putting together of this particular book? What, and if you can talk to us, if, if there's something personal in it, we'd love to hear that too. 
Sure. Um, first of all, thank you for this interview. It's a pleasure. Um, I have always been, well, for a long time, inspired by Anna Freud. And actually, ever since I worked in foster care and adoption at Manhattan Family Court in the 1980s, in the early 1980s, and I had the good luck of working with uh, Judge Nanette Dembitz, who was Judge Brandeis's niece. And she introduced me to Beyond and Before the Best Interest of the Child. And um, her court was an amazing place because she made social workers and lawyers pursue solutions that would be best for the child from the child's perspective. And that was really a head turner for many. It wasn't from the perspective of the parents, but from the child. So as my career shifted from practice to teaching and eventually to politically engaged historical research on psychoanalysis, Anna Freud's name uh, was a kind of constant thread and it turned up in unexpected ways, um, like in her early work with the radical educator Siegfried Benfeld, who's interesting, or in the somewhat less radical but equally challenging uh, work of the anti-authoritarian uh, August Eichhorn. Um, plus, she has an inspiring story. Her own life is very resilient of a woman's determination to understand children. Uh, she was a refugee from Nazi violence in Vienna and later survived wartime conditions in London. But she was extraordinarily productive and thoughtful and researched everything. Uh, she developed schools and training programs and child refugee centers um, and all the way, all the time, developing new methods for observing human development. So um, about um, uh, six, seven years ago, in one of those just remarkably odd New York coincidences, I was, uh, it took it several routes, but I was introduced to Michael Burlingham who was uh, Dorothy Burlingham's grandson. And just at that moment, Michael was uncovering uh, his own father's archival material, which uh, included these amazing uh, negatives of his photographs. And Michael turned to me and said, oh, look, here are some of Freud. And uh, you could have knocked me over with a feather. So, um, it. but what really grabbed me, in addition to the never-before-seen pictures of Sigmund Freud, there were pictures of Anna Freud and photographs of the Heatsing School, where Bob, who was Michael's father and Dorothy's son, had been a student. Now, it happened that I knew about the Heatsing School, and I had written somewhat, uh, you know, a few paragraphs about it uh, in Freud's Free Clinics because it brought together so many of my interests. But here were the real-life photographs. So um, I said, well, we have to exhibit these. 
And I had become interested in curatorial work because I worked, um, I was just coming off a project in Vienna, um, a major exhibit on Wilhelm Reich, and the curatorial work really intrigued me. So that was sort of uh, uh, seeing those photographs, having access to them, and then it, it just brought many things together. So from that, um, fortunately, the uh, Freud Museum, Carol Siegel, who's the director, was intrigued, and we were able to move forward with the exhibit. And then along with the exhibit, I developed an international conference um, and with, with all the sort of key players in the field. And um, my only stipulation with the participants, with the speakers, was they could do write or, and speak about anything they wanted, but that it had to be original material because I had a book in mind. And um, for Tiffany, it's the results mm -hmm. of that. And it's a book that has, I think, nine, uh, nine essays. And the, the essayists, the writers, are uh, quite a diverse group. Would you care to talk about, um, you know, sort of who's, who's in the book and, and a little bit about their, their background? Because it, it is fascinating um, th to see this. It, it's not the usual suspects, uh, I, would, I would say. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Well, um, let me see if I can start. So, um, I mean, the the essays ended up, I think, being all extraordinary, and the um, the authors worked very, very hard. It was really a community project. Um, one essay is by Michael Molnar, who had been the director of the Freud Museum in London, and who's actually a historian of photography and. He wrote this wonderful essay about Bob's photographs. Uh, Michael Burlingham gave him access to the entire collection as well. And he sort of brought together the strands from, of, of a history of photography from the photographer's perspective and also history of psychoanalysis and also um, an understanding of the gaze from the point of view of both the subject and the this photographer. This is the, the essay, the, the School for Trick Cyclists, which is a, a, you know, a uh, euphemism for uh, masturbation, yes? Isn't that? Yeah. <laughs> Among other things, right. But a uh, trick cyclist apparently in England is also a kind of slang for therapist. Um, um, and there, that illustration there, um, it's one of Bob's photographs and it's, uh, two boys on one bicycle. They're looking at each other. It's not a tandem bicycle, but we can't tell what the conversation is. So Michael develops insight into what it possibly could be. And also through the idea of the gaze and then in context of a school. Um, another essay is by Thomas Eichhorn, who's the grandson of August Eichhorn. And that's and he's an analyst, um, yes. a real, yeah. he is an analyst in Vienna. Yeah. Um, and 
he has published a great deal about his grandfather because he is also holder of his grandfather's archives. And he drew from his own archives to, in this essay, publish letters, publish correspondence between August Eichhorn and um, Anna, uh, Dorothy, Eva Rosenfeld, and Peter Blos, all of whom were key players. And just can I, can I, but can I interject ex- something here for the listeners, which is what you, on reading this book, you suddenly discover that some of the major theorists of um, psychoanalytic thinking about adolescence, Peter Bloss, um, Eric Erickson, uh, August Eichhorn, of course, um, they, you recognize they all were together and working together um, at this school. It was incredible to me. I didn't, I didn't know that background. Yeah. Um, it, precisely. Yeah, that is something that really... Um, fascinated me from the get-go. It really is this nexus of, uh, of psychoanalysis that both Peter Bloss and Eric Erickson were young men and that it was essentially their first jobs. Um, and uh, I heard even Kurt Eisler That's was right, there. Eisler. I mean, everybody was mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Incredible. That's right. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, you know, moments of like Erickson and Bloss before they're analysts, you know, before they enter Correct. into their own analyses, before it's the, it's their, their thinking before they are sure they want to um, uh, head down this, the particular path that they eventually headed down. And so. You, That's right. Yeah. Which is. It's so Erickson entered analysis with Anna Freud when he was teaching at the Heising school. Although Anna had been the one to hire him, mm-hmm. actually. And uh, Peter Blows says that he wasn't at all interested in analysis, but he was interested in Eichhorn. Right. So, I mean, that's just two examples. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Early- of, where they, of where they started. And, um, you know, you get a sense of each of their individual characters and, uh, yes. and where, where they went from there. I, I, yes. it, was very, it was very tender and it was surprising to me. I kept thinking, oh, this is, doesn't, it doesn't seem to me from sort of the crossroads of, you know, different sort of uh, literatures in the history of psychoanalysis that you found this very fertile pocket of history. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I was, you know, in, in reading the Elizabeth Young Brule biography, very famous, right, of Anna Freud, mm-hmm. there's a, a quote um, about Eva Rosenfeld, um, who was a mm-hmm. dear friend of Anna Freud and also of Dorothy mm-hmm. Birmingham, that, quote, she offered her back garden as the location for a little schoolhouse that Dorothy equipped and staffed for the education of her own children, Eva's son, and several children who boarded in Eva's home. My question is, yeah. this is the, the I'm going to say it incorrectly, uh, correct me, Heitzing School? Heitzing. This is the Heitzing yeah. School, yes? Yeah. Think of it as double E. Oh, okay. In German, if you have, in German, I-E is pronounced E, okay. whereas E-I is pronounced I. Like, you know, like people say, like Karen Horn-I. Oh, right. But it's the Heitzing School. Yeah. Yeah, but this is she's she's referring to the Heatsing School here. Is that correct? I mean, yes, that's, correct. That's right. Yeah, and it moves on from there to really not explore much else um, in the book about the school, right? So, right, yeah, because it was not a focus of hers. But once I started moving into it, I I realized how 
how amazing it was uh, in the people that it brought together. And I mean, Marie Bonaparte would um, uh, come in and out and um, just all of these people. And I mean, what it must have been like to be in a staff meeting there. (laughs) (laughs) Did you, is there any, did you have a sense of, of what that was like? I mean, we have wonderful examples of Anna Freud beginning to develop a way of uh, training um, those who would go on to work analytically with children. We really see the roots uh-huh. of that here. Um, but do you have any sense uh-huh. of, of these staff meetings? Uh, and Oh, yeah. Um, Erickson talks quite a bit about them. And um, in his essays, he's got a couple of essays in the book, A Way of Looking at Things. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I mean, he sort of goes back and forth on was this a psychoanalytic school or not? And I think one of the um, one of the discussions always was how to keep it uh, thoroughly academic um, using uh, John Dewey's project method, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet be psychoanalytically minded. So all of the children, well, not all actually, most were in analysis themselves. And so the teachers knew when the children had their sessions, or as Bob Burlingham called his lessons, he called them his lessons with Anna Freud. Um, so academically, it worked uh, when the school closed and the children had to go into uh, standard um, public schools in Vienna. They all passed their entrance exams. So academically, it was really very sufficient, very adequate. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the teachers really made an effort not to be... Um, not to focus on what was happening uh, analytically with the children when the children were in class. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they thought about it themselves. And remember, neither Erickson nor Blos were in analysis themselves yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, Erickson still thought of himself as an artist. Right, right. Um, and he actually, you know, there's this wonderful story uh, uh, he was an artist. I mean, he was then called Eric Holmberger, and he was a fairly successful young artist. He had exhibited with Max Beckman in Berlin and so forth. And he and Peter Bloss went way back. Their families knew each other. So one day, Peter wrote to Eric and said, "Hey, you know, if you if there's nothing else, you know, if you're not doing much else, there's this interesting thing happening in Vienna. People are starting a school." Would you be interested in coming down and teaching? <laughs> and the way in which Erickson was able to pay for his trip from Berlin to Vienna was once he got to Vienna, he did these drawing, these portrait drawings of all of Dorothy's children and Dorothy herself. And they're just really great drawings. Wow. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I think I was surprised. I was like, Freud, Tiffany, what's 
what's the Tiffany connection? And of course, in, uh-huh. in reading the book, I, my eyes were fully, fully opened. And yeah. we learn a tremendous amount about not just Anna Freud, but about Tiffany, about Dorothy Tiffany yes. Burlingham, her background, yes. um, her interest in blindness, which was fascinating, yes. and in twins. Yes. Um, can you share with the, the listeners um, who Dorothy Tiffany Burlingham is actually yes. uh, a Tiffany? Yes. She is. Well, was, definitely. She was the youngest daughter of Louis Comfort Tiffany, the great American artist. And um, so there's an interesting thing there because Anna was the youngest daughter of Sigmund Freud and Dorothy was the youngest daughter of Louis Comfort Tiffany. So there's a, a, a match going on there already. Um, she grew up in um, this very elite uh, but progressive family, New York family. Uh, she was a model for her father, and she disliked that a great deal. So, in fact, we do have one of the essays in the book uh, called um, The Young Dorothy, which is a portrait of it's by our historian, and it's a portrait of Dorothy before she arrived in Vienna. And Dorothy was married to uh, Robert Burlingham, who was a very well-known uh, lawyer at the time, uh, also from a very prestigious New York family. Um, but he had um, several, and I don't really know what they are, serious mental illnesses, probably manic depression. And she um, decided to escape. Now, being from this particular family, her mother and cousin had read Interpretation of Dreams when it first came out. They read it out loud in German. (laughs) So this is the kind of family... um, on her mother's side, she came from, and then, and then there was her father's extravagance. Anyway, um, Dorothy was obviously under considerable duress and was also clearly really um, brilliant and an intellectual striver, but didn't know where to go with it. So hearing about Freud, she decided to uh, leave New York with her four children and come to Vienna ostensibly um, to have Bob, her son, who is the photographer, um, start analysis because he had a lot of psychosomatic problems that weren't treated, um, couldn't be treated medically. And so that's how she got to Vienna. Yeah, and and uh, within a year, she um, she was she decided um, that she would try her hand first at analysis. So she was referred to Theodore Reich, whom she started, and that way she could then tell Bob about what it was like and the circumstances under which Anne and Dorothy actually met are not known, but it's assumed that somehow. Dorothy got the referral to Anna Freud for Bob. Huh. And what happened with her analysis with Reich? It just, I wasn't clear. Um, Do we know? Um, She was, um, I know that uh, she was in analysis with him for about two years. 
and then it ended. I don't know what those circumstances were. And then uh, about a year and a half later, she started her own analysis with Freud. Now, at that point, the Burlinghams had moved into Baragasa 19. Exactly. They lived on the fourth Ma- floor. Married yeah. to the mob. I mean. No. <laughs> or the mom. Right, or the mom, right? <laughs> or, or the mom mob. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, they really did become a, a blended family. It's really interesting. That's another thing that really comes through in this, uh, in reading these essays is um, the way in which, um, you know, different authors were trying to describe um, the relationship between Anna and Dorothy. And, you know, there's, and I actually took some notes. Elizabeth and I were supposed to do the interview last week, but I was, I was ill and it was gay pride weekend. And I was thinking, oh yeah, this is an interesting piece of history here that like in the profession of psychoanalysis, you know, it's sort of at some level, is it an it's an open secret or is it a secret or was Anna, you know, Anna certainly seemed to be in love with Dorothy. Was it a unrequited love? Was it just a, a friendship for Dorothy? Um, there's, you know, it's, it's a question that um, even from the young Brule biography is, is left uh, profoundly um, unanswered. I think young Brule tells us that Anna could, um, could over quote unquote oversee and altruistically support Dorothy's interests in men, as long as these remain platonic and did not threaten their friendship. That's a, that's a quote from the biography. Um, and I, well, now we yeah, now we can be a little bit we can be less circumspect right, about it. Right. I mean, you know, they lived and worked together for over forty years once they got to Marysfield Gardens, mm-hmm. um, and actually, um, Michael has Michael Burlingham has written about letters that he still owns mm-hmm. from Anna to Dorothy. And th- there's no question in my mind that it was a love relationship. I'm so, can I just say, it's so such so refreshing just to have it put in those terms. Because I was going, I was like, there's a language of twins. We use partnership. We say passionate friendship. You know, although yeah. we, have, we have Icorn acknowledges, right, the women's relationship. That's from Thomas, yes. you know, uh, Burlingham referred, it's referred to as a lifetime attachment. Um, yeah. You know, but it, it's a, like young Brule says she was a, um, oh, what's the word? Um, anyway, that, that Anna never had sex. And I just keep thinking to myself, but these women, like they went off for the weekend to their country home. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, they had a country home, uh, and at, outside of Vienna, they had a country home outside. Now, I mean, you know, uh, no, I, nobody was in their bedroom. I don't know. You know, I mean, that's the sort of thing that, like, who knows? You're, but, you're about to, qu- to quote Blanche Wiesenkuck, right, on Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> I can get you to the bedroom door, but I can't get you to the other side. Of <laughs> can't get you any further. Right. <laughs> yeah. And there's, real, and there's no point because... You know, intrapsychically, the more you get to know these women, I mean, the more it's clear that there was an intensity of in their relations. And it's also interesting. The uh, a book that came out, I think, last year or two years ago, called Freud and Freud. It's the correspondence between Anna and her father. Mm-hmm. You probably know mm-hmm. it, but um, 
the only, the third person, the only other person to whom Freud writes is Dorothy. Right, right. <laughs> and Dorothy writes to him. Yes. And there's this. And it's completely fluid and open right. as though we're one writing to a daughter or an in-law. An in-law, I mean, that's right. It, yeah, that's right. I mean, there is just like. You know, okay, all right, we get it. Right, right, and of course, and and what's what's delightful is one gets the sense that like Freud gets it. You know what I mean? It's not yeah, like he gets he's not it. he's not in the dark, and he do, he's not negating of it, and he's not. I, I mean, there there's a, a a to my my read of you know those letters. There's a real there's there's just like a it's sort of casual. You know, there's like a casual. Yes, indeed, exactly. Yeah, and. Last actually, last um, Sunday at the Gay Pride March, you know, there was a uh-huh. big contingent of um, not big, but a small, small but sturdy contingent of psychoanalysts who put together, um, you know, a banner psychoanalysis for Pride and held signs like uh-huh. Dora come back or Daddy issues uh-huh. call an analyst. But you know, in a way, people are like, well, but Freud was, you know, did he ever have? A you know yes, there's that letter to the mother of a homosexual, but it's right. but what we don't sort of talk about is within his own life, within his own home, uh-huh. you know his his beloved daughter is is yes. his her lo- love of her life is a woman named Dorothy Tiffany Burlingham, and exactly. she raised her children. Uh, she analyzed uh-huh. her children. He analyzed right. Dorothy. I mean, it's you know, yeah, <laughs> it's, that's right. And so. I mean, it's um, yeah, it's it's just one of these blinders that's coming down, I think. Yeah. And um, you know, there's so much that we still have to unpack from the Freud orthodoxy, yes. you know, and yep. genital theory and these sort of normative ideas right. that were imposed right. on Freud uh, that he didn't have at all. I mean, you know, Freud had very intense relationships with men. Oh my I mean, those, yes. <laughs> those letters with Forenzi are like, you know, they're hot. They are. And, um, uh, you know, again, who knows, nothing, probably nothing happened physically between the two of them, but who knows? Right. You know, it's the quality of the relationship. That's right. That's right. There was, yeah. Eros was alive and well. And, Indeed. There and you anima- go. animating uh, their, yeah. their exchanges. I mean. Talk, totally. Yeah. The libido had found a place. Yeah. You know, between. Indeed. Totally. Between, yeah. between them. But I, it's just, it's refreshing yeah. just to, I was like, can we just say this? You know, it, yeah, I, think, I, know. I think we, I think we may be the first ones because you know like this is it this is the big moment you know like in, in publishing history on new books and psychoanalysis yes right. anna loved dorothy dorothy loved anna okay you know there you go right right, right. Yeah. i mean it just um uh, and when you consider like at the Freud museum london which was you know the um well, it's the Freud Museum in London, but it was the Freud House. Freud lived there for a year only, and then he died. But right. Anna and Dorothy lived there for over 40 years right. together and worked there. Right. So and there's, together. there's actually a wonderful, um, I don't know if you know this book. I recently interviewed Ellen Pinsky. Um, oh, my gosh, the title is a little long, Death and Fallibility. Um I'm going to screw it up. But anyway, there's a lot in that book about Anna being analyzed by her father about sort of 
boundaries mm-hmm. and boundary violations in psychoanalysis and this early right. this early experience of you know what can one say to one's father um but aside from mm-hmm. that there's a there's some beautiful um i don't know where these these quotes come from but anna freud wearing dorothy's um some sort of a sweater after so, Dor- yeah. after Dorothy yeah. died, and the, I yeah. forget the language she used to describe it, but it really, mm-hmm. it, you know, it just it, you 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 feel the way when you lose someone who your libido mm-hmm. is tied up with, you do yeah. everything to hold to hold on to that to treasure it, and, uh-huh. and Pinsky just has these these quotes that I had never read before about Anna. Anna's morning. Um, oh, I'll have to look that up. I don't. Yeah, it's a it's, nice. it's a terrific book. It's really great. Yeah, it's a, actually the interview is great too. She describes great. she describes a lot. Um, I, uh-huh. you know, this book. I, I hope you take this in the in the best spirit. This book had sort of an. I, I kept thinking, oh, there's so many tidbits in here, like pieces of almost not quite gossip, but like there was an uh-huh. there was an element of like. Oh, 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 I didn't know this. I didn't. And, and when I, uh-huh. I just read, I, I think maybe you wrote this. I'm not sure that um, Freud's ego and mechanism of defense is based on Hitzig. I, I said to myself, Hitzig, I said, my goodness. I said, why didn't I? It, it, it just, just seemed to me very, um, I don't know. It just, there were a lot of no, moments like that. that wasn't me. That was, was, that that? was Florian's. Florian Roussier. Ah, okay. Now, Roussier, he's um, an analyst in Paris, and he's the person, the only person who's written a freestanding book on the Heating School. It's called Anna Freud et son école. Um, yeah, and so it's a terrific book, and his chapter is about... Um, he sees Heating as he calls it the birthplace of a theor- psychoanalytic theory of adolescence. And in terms of what you were talking about earlier, he really speaks about Anna Freud's analysis with her father as the um, the seedbed of her own interest in adolescence. And some of the theories, which were then expanded on at Heathing and from her research there. So that would be Roussier. Was that, and yes. Did Roussier also say something that, um, that, Anna, that the only part of Anna's um, analysis, the only place Anna's analysis didn't touch was her adolescence? Is that, did I read that there? I don't think so, about a, no. Something to do with her adolescence not being analyzed, and it's funny the sort of popular understanding of Anna Freud was she she's sort of the adult who didn't have an adolescence. Um, yeah, I, right. If, I don't know if that's true or not, but I mean, in terms of thinking about her, she was you know her her father's uh, you know uh, confidant, and they they had mm-hmm. such a closeness, but she always seems depicted as having been um, a small adult. Uh, yeah, that's that's right, and in fact, that's one of that was one of the goals of this book to begin to disengage her from yeah. the following sentence: "Anna Freud, devoted daughter of Sigmund and an analyst in her own right." Uh huh. Uh huh. 
Can you, right. Yeah. So we want to sort of start disengaging from that and say, you know, Anna Freud, an analyst and a, a woman in, of on her own, you know, mm-hmm. in her own words. Right. And um, I think, again, some of that is the attempt to impose all of this normativity on her. I think that Freud did know about um, her attraction to women, like her attraction to Andrea Salome and so forth. But he was also protective because Ernest Jones was really after her. Right. Right. And um, I, you know, I think a number of men were sort of after quote the boss's daughter, mm-hmm. but she was sensitive to that, and she could be great friends with men. Like she and Eichhorn were wonderful friends. Mm-hmm. You get that sense. But in ter- in terms of relationships, all she was that was not where she was going, and I think um, her biographers and narrators of her life still have a hard time with that. Right. They're holding to some sort of a, a, a Freudian line, quote unquote. That's really not a quote unquote. That's, that's right, right. A, a quote unquote, for, you know, sort of yeah. 1950s ego psychology. Freudian there you line. go. It's like, mm, I think that, um, yeah. you know, that's been, it's right. been loosened up a bit, but not in the biograph in the biographical work. And I just think no. it's so, um, it's so refreshing to return um, to, you know, to, to take Anna Freud from this, you know, from the way in which she's been seen as, as a nun or as a, you know, like, <laughs> you know, come on. I mean, and, you know, and she, really, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a, right. A Jewish nun, you know, of sorts. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but you get to also get a sense of her, her, her vital mind, um, and, mm-hmm. you know, through, throughout the book and her, mm-hmm. her, in, her intense curiosity and a way of and her way of listening and listening to people talk about cases and um, mm-hmm. and it, that she was sort of learning like it was I, I I was at the end of the book I had a very different impression of her that she was um, uh, learning in real time you know that that she was very experiment yeah. that she was experimental that it was a yeah, I, she has this wonderful line where she says, "A child will tell you everything you want to know if only you will listen." <laughs> you know, and I that was her, um, you know, to listen to the children. What are they telling you? And um, that, of course, guided her research, which then you know became absolutely meticulous with the observation cards and yes. um yes. you know she trained everybody to do that but again to you know unpack our own uh blinders and preconceptions about certainly when she was writing about education and in this she was very influenced mm-hmm. by Berenfeld you know yeah. what to what extent are educators simply demanding that the children conform to bourgeois norms mm-hmm. and everything else is deviance, mm-hmm. as opposed to what is really going on here? 
but all from real life here and now observation. Well, there's a wonderful, um, I not, I forget which, which of your authors, uh, uh, this information comes from, but it's, a. Uh, Writing someone, what was the quote? Oh, oh children's response to war. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> that, and of course, you know, as an analyst, it's you know, it makes complete sense to me. It's like what could yeah. be more, what could be more exciting last night yeah, with the fireworks right. than explosions? <laughs> children love explosions. That's Inga Pretorius. Inga Pretorius, who who um, <laughs> works at the Anna Freud Center uh-huh. and. She also is the archivist of the Anna Freud Center, although recently, with the recent move, you know, the Anna Freud Center has moved from Marisfield Gardens oh. to central London. Oh, no, I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and all of the archives have been moved from the library to the Welcome Center. Oh, wow. But the um, archives are obviously a treasure trove of um, not only hundreds and hundreds of actually thousands of these observation cards, but also letters and essays from everybody who passed through there. Mm-hmm. But the stories, you know, Anna also, in, in listening to children, she somehow also had the capacity to translate their stories so that adults could hear the stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and she talks about that in her interviews with Robert Coles. And I think that book, Robert Coles, The Dream of Psychoanalysis, is really the best. I think that's the best biographical material we have because it's uh, mostly in her words and from these histories he mm-hmm. did with her, mm-hmm. these interviews. Yeah. And um, it's about herself as um, as a teacher and an analyst and a leader and so forth. But over and over again. And that's, I think, a lot of what was behind these brilliant books on the best interest of the child. Right. It's just, you know, child time. What's going on with the child? Listen to the child. I mean, and in that, she was enormously influential. Mm-hmm. There's also the school, what is it, the, the school buffet? What was that? The baby buffet. The baby buffet. Can you say a few words yeah. about this? So cool. <laughs> It's wonderful because that started um, at the Jackson Nursery in Vienna um, in 37. It was a, another, um, it was funded by Edith Jackson, actually. And they brought in children, tiny children, you know, from infants to uh, young toddlers um, who were, as uh, they said, beyond from families beyond the doll, really the poorest of the who were in ill health and malnourished and had all these behavioral difficulties and they didn't know how to eat and so I don't believe you know this is school you've got to give the children breakfast and so they would lay out these incredible buffets of every food imaginable including chocolates all this chocolate and the first few days the children would just gorge themselves on this chocolate, but then it petered out and they started on their own eating more balanced meals. So she was very concerned and, and interested in something that um, that's actually one thinks about with Wilhelm Reich, but this was Anna Fries, which is self-regulation. Mm-hmm. 
In other words, you know, if you allow the child to to breathe on its own, uh, it will start self-regulating. But it needs to be taught basics of hygiene and and how to respect its its own body and things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, but those are the baby food phase. And later they replicated that at the war nurseries and, mm-hmm. and throughout. Yeah, that was Children really always cool. had breakfast. Yeah. And, yeah. and they got to choose and, you know. Everything they, they wanted. Right, rather than. And a, eat wherever they wanted. Yeah, and yeah. But they had to learn to, um, to, to be clean, mm-hmm. to take care of themselves mm-hmm. and their environments. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, all of it was this. This idea of self-regulation that they will learn, and they did. Right. Rather than arousing resistances and reifying mm-hmm. defenses that the defense, That's right. whatever was going on, whatever the conflict was about taking in, um, yeah. was, was resolved by a, a very light touch, um, yeah. an extraordinary and light she had, touch. And she had confidence in the children. Yes. You know, that they would learn, that they could do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Within certain guidelines and certain parameters, right. of course. Right. But that was that's really a theme, mm-hmm. and it's a very um, encouraging thing. Yeah. Theme also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Ab- absolutely. And it's sort of the uh, again an experiment. But we'll just we'll, mm-hmm. we'll put all this food out, and we'll just see what happens. You know, we'll just, mm-hmm. we'll observe, and then if if things really seem to be going awry, well, I guess we'll we'll think of a new intervention. You know, that's right. But there was a, yeah. a cre- creative, really creative interventions. Um, yeah. You know that were not uh, necessarily verbal, but you know were were effective. Um, Indeed. Yeah. yeah. And and um, then when that was replicated um, in London, Willie Hoffer took hundreds and hundreds of photographs of the children, and it's just a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful series. The baby of, You know. Yeah, the baby buffet. Yeah, just, exactly. Even the, just the name. I mean, of course, in <laughs> English, it just worked. The baby buffet. It's so um, I don't yeah. know, sort of uh, you know, like a bacchanal. You know, like what, <laughs> what's on the table? But it wasn't. I mean, you know, that's the thing is that it it's, wasn't. Yeah, an orgy. It wasn't. It was um, uh, trusting the children to to begin to regulate their own bodies and mind and mm-hmm. affect, mm-hmm. you know, with guidelines. Right. And so, I mean, one of the things I'm really interested in on Freud is, again, how counter-normative that Absolutely. Is. You know, because when we think about post-war and, you know, you, you must do this and the child must do that and be fed every... For hours, if not, it's a disaster, and um, and of course, all of the blaming of mothers mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for not doing the right thing when all maybe the mother was doing was not allowing the child mm-hmm. to have enough space. Right, so. right. Maybe Anna Freud's gotten a bad rap because of like Hartman, Heinz Hartman, and like the use of the ego and the mechanisms of defense is seen as adaptation. Adaptation, and, and he, sure. He's kind of been, um, you know, ba- ba- the critique of all of that by the relational school or the interpersonalists, et cetera. Sort of, we have Anna Freud thrown out like baby, baby, and back to baby, baby and bath, baby and bath water. Um, what do you think Anna Freud would make of? Uh, are you familiar? I'm sure you're familiar with the work on attachment theory. 
um, that seems to yeah. abound and I definitely impacts, you know, some, some social policy. Yeah. What, where do you think she'd be with, with a, sort of the current thinking on attachment theory? I, I, I keep going back to the same thing, mm-hmm. which is look at it from the child's perspective. I mean, this is really what I learned from Anna Freud. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, of course, attachment. I mean, that was really what Inga Pretorius's chapter was about. Yeah. There are all of these explode the war. What we think of as horrifying in the war, the blitz and so forth is not what concerned the children. Like children were concerned about, you know, where are my parents? Will I see my parents? And, and then and of course today, to, yeah. precisely today in America, yes, to talk about the, this right. is, you know, mm-hmm. it's what we're, I mean, the research has been done. We know the impact. Yeah. That's right. We know the impact. Yeah. And there are people, I mean, when I was in child welfare, the people who were saying, that, oh, the child is resilient and da, da, da. You know, there are limits, of course, to the child's resilience. But the resilience, I mean, when you put kids in cages and deport their parents, there goes the resilience. As long as the child knows somewhere that the parent is or a parent figure. Now, this is really important. Mm -hmm. And this was developed at the war nurseries because of the parent was not available and Freud created these um what you call artificial families right right and so there were the mothers of these families so it was a substitute mother mm-hmm. and actually that worked out fine mm-hmm. you know while there, as long as there was attachment mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. and then when she went you know one of her revolutionary ideas that was very upsetting to and continues to be to Americans is the idea that it it actually does not need to be the biological parent. Right. Right. What matters is the the attachment. Right. Right. That where, where one is inside the mind of, of the person who is, who is the adult who's, who's there for you? You know, where are you in their mind? Right. Because you can be, right. you can be in a, in a, in a difficult place inside a biological parent's mind and that can have its own impact. Uh, exactly. You know, often, that's right. often, yeah. that, that's why I have, that's why I have a private practice. Um, uh, sure. you know, most, yeah. most of my patients were raised by their biological families, I would say. And, uh, they, and it didn't do them much it didn't, good. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't actually, <laughs> <laughs> it didn't. It didn't. It didn't. Uh, right. The outcome was not optimal. Let's, yeah, let's right. just put it that way. Um, we're almost out of time. Is there anything that we sure. have not spoken about that you wanted the audience to know about? I mean, I'm really curious. There's there's so much in this book. Um, there's but is there anything that we didn't touch on that you feel uh, you'd like to say a few words about? Um. Well, one is the um, the relationship with Dorothy and how important that was to Anna Freud's adult life. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think that her later work in the 70s yeah. at Yale um, is often underestimated, especially because the idea of children's rights is now so disparaged yeah. um, 
but she was very, and those are extremely important. The United States is the only developed country that has not never signed on to the United Nations uh, Declaration of the Rights of the Child. And so I, you know, that's just, that, I mean, that says everything right, right there. there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's important to see Anna Freud's entire life. I mean, I think that had she not been Sigmund Freud's daughter, which is, of course, impossible, but she might be seen in a more authoritative light of life as of her research interventions, developments, her her theoretical work. I mean, people use the mechanisms of defense, you know, words like denial and projection. And, you know, I was, you know, started looking up some stuff on the mechanisms of defense and I see all of these listed under Sigmund Freud. Right. It's like, wrong. Who wrote those? Exactly. So there is... Um, a measure of sexism there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she just really, we need to start taking her really seriously. I love, I love that idea, sort of removing her from like underneath her, you know, she's sort of cloaked in her father's, underneath her father's overcoat. You know, there's Anna. Yeah. And it's like, well, actu- yeah. actually, there were more people in Anna's life um, than just her father. And, and she had, and she had also, you know, we, you know, we learn, of course, she it's sort of like, where is her mother? Where is her mother? She had a real need for an, you know, for, for a triangle, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like we all do. Sure. And, and she, yeah. and she saw, and when she could, she, she sought it out. She sought yeah. other significant female figures in her life, not just, mm-hmm. and I don't mean to turn with Dorothy into something that's mother daughter, no. but I mean, you know, with, with no. Salome and with, I forget the uh, yeah. what's her name. Um, oh my goodness! Uh, uh, last name begins with a K. Uh, Loie Kahn. Exactly, Loie Kahn. Yeah. But, you know that that left to her own uh, devices. She she sought what she needed. That, yeah. And and, and that, uh, that's a beautiful yeah. part of this book is you you're watching Anna Freud seek out what was missing, what she needed. And I guess perhaps we see that in the baby buffet, you know, you'll seek out out what you need and attempt attempt to get it. Um, Yeah. That's a nice way of putting it. Absolutely. And she was very powerful, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, she was a really powerful person. Yeah. Yeah. And let's start dealing with that. Right. Right. Instead of meek, Meek, mild. I was like, yeah, not, uh, uh, not so meek, right. not so mild, and uh, no. you know, and not um, you know, as a, a kind of delibidinized, sort of like just I'm yeah. li- living through the children, and I'm thinking I don't think so because she really right. was living with a yeah. living with a lot of adults and working with adults yeah. and teaching adults and you know developing a way of sort of forming the formation of child analysts, you know, uh-huh. really very, very much hands-on, exp- you know, and, uh-huh. and to use that word again, experimental, um, uh-huh. you know, it was, nothing was tried and true. It was she, uh-huh. her openness um, to new uh-huh. feedback was, was extraordinary. So, yeah. and I'm glad you brought up the adult because I think, um, I infantilized may be the wrong word, but always putting her, uh, wrapping her in Sigmund Freud's cloak yep. 
um, we don't see that the relationship with Dorothy was an adult relationship. Absolutely. They were partners for over 40 years. They raised kids. They had homes. That was an adult relationship. And they, they chose furniture. I think there's a description of the furniture <laughs> from the country home that sounds, I was like, I want to see that furniture. It sounds like <laughs> brightly painted and interesting. I was like, yeah. you know, yeah. that th- th- there's a liveliness that um, this book uh, captures. And it, I think, is what's, what I, I think will happen with this book in particular, is it's going to inspire further reevaluations because of its tone, so. its tone and timbre, and what it reveals about Anna and her and her life from a complete, completely different points of view than than where she's been sort of circumscribed. Yeah, no, it's it's, yeah. it's absolute. I was it was a delight to read precisely be, because of that for me. I was like, whoa, and a lot of pictures too, which are just so fun. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there are actually over a hundred photographs in that book, yeah. uh, many of which have not been seen before. All of the authors did an enormous amount of archival research. I mean, some of it came from the exhibit, of course. We had yeah. already uh, gotten all those photographs and uh, permitted, but still, yeah. Are you going to bring was, the exhibit uh, here? Um, you need a place? I, I bet you I could broker, I mean, broker my, my institute has a, a gorgeous building on 10th. You're kidding. No, it's like a, it has marshmallow molding and chandeliers and um, oh my oriental rugs. And they love to do exhibits. I'm, I'm, if you want to come to, if you want to, if you want to, let's, let's, talk. let's talk. The Center for Modern <laughs> Psychoanalytic Studies would be, I think, delighted to, to you know, to, to have a discussion about this. Because I, wow. I was like, I want to see these photographs, and I want to, and there's big um, uh, French doors, you know, floor to ceiling wow. windows, yeah, like tw- I don't know, it's 18 foot ceiling. So it's, yeah. um, and it's well, it's well located in sort of psychoanalytic central. So we'll, Great, we'll talk about it. I love we'll this. We'll talk. Okay, and you know, there's also then we made a film. Also. Yes, that's right. Same you know, keyword. that goes along. Yeah. The film that goes along with it. Yeah. Yeah. Great. All right. So I'm going to bring our interview to a close. It's been absolutely delightful. I'm so glad we could find the time and make the time and um, that you were able to make the time for us just to. Thank you. You know, I think that people. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. I think people have gotten a good introduction to to the book. So, um, Elizabeth Andanto, whatever you do next, you'll um, hopefully let us know here at New Books and Psychoanalysis. And, um, Listeners, uh, thanks for listening as always. Um, and uh, if you want to be a host, you want to be an intern, write to me. Write to me. Okay, all for now. Bye bye. Okay, bye. Thank you.